the morning out too. Today's scripture is Psalm 98, one through nine. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Um, there's nothing I can possibly do to be more entertaining than the children singing. Um, so uh, just be glad you had it. Welcome to church this morning. This is our final week in our series on the Psalms. This is it. We've done 15 Psalms together. This has been a long series. Uh, so thanks for hanging in there with us. I've really enjoyed it. It's also nice to be able to kind of just pick a Psalm for what you want to preach on. That's a perk rather than just working through other books. Um, so what we've been going over in this series on the Psalms is exploring this dichotomy that we have in our culture in terms of how we relate to our emotions. So we have one aspect of our culture that says your emotions are the core of who you are. It's the most true thing about you. And therefore, you need to uh, follow your emotions, pursue your passions, ex find the best ways to express your emotional truths. Um, then we have another aspect of our culture, which says that your emotions are really just in the way. They uh, don't ref reflect any sort of reality. Uh, they're just like weather. They pass, and they aren't necessarily relevant to you. So what that side of our culture recommends is a sort of stoic detachment from our emotions. Your emotions are in the way. Remove yourself from your emotions in order to become in contact with your truest self. The Psalms, on the other hand, offer a, a different approach. They recommend a wholehearted way of living, which allows us to uh, truly and honestly understand our emotions and express ourselves and understand ourselves as emotional beings, as well as uh, thinking and understanding and knowing type of beings. And so, Rather than idolizing one aspect of ourselves and therefore demonizing the other aspect of ourselves, in the Psalms we see this wholehearted way of living, and that a true understanding of the way that God created us to live will involve our emotions as well as our reason. And those are brought together in the Psalms really beautifully. This, uh, this sermon, as you can tell by the title, is, uh, it, this is going to be a Christmas sermon. Um, which we're, we're, gonna, we're going to celebrate here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, because it's been December for a while, and I don't think we've mentioned Christmas yet. 
but when we go, we go. We have kids sing, and we do Christmas sermons, and there's wreaths, and it's a big deal. So we're having a Christmas, uh, this is going to be a Christmas message, and Christmas, it, it works sort of, it, we have the, that same sort of dichotomy that Christmas brings up in terms of how we approach the holiday season. It's either this sort of pure sentimentality, um, which is like so joyful and, and something that you want to embrace completely, or it's like it's something that's too sweet, and it's like, I need to stop eating this because I'm going to get a cavity. Um, and that's kind of the way that we approach Christmas. You either idolize the Hallmark Channel or you demonize the Hallmark Channel. And it, within the church, as Christians, we, we have all sorts of uh, different approaches to Christmas. There's, uh, there's a war on Christmas, um, which I, I guess uh, they're recruiting. They're gonna, there's going to be a draft um, for the war on Christmas. And uh, it, which, which means there's, there's all this fluff and there's all this extra just vacant, vacant sentimentality in regards to our Christmas that we just need to ignore and get back to what the real thing is, um, which can seem kind of dry in a sense. Uh, and, uh, but the, the way that we approach Christmas, it can be this wholehearted thing. And what I, what I, wanna see, what I want us to see this morning is that when we are able to sift through all the noise of Christmas and get, get the signal, the signal, right, the meaningful part, that we have reason to be more joyful than even the, the most sentimental, nostalgic experience of Christmas could ever provide. Our true understanding of Christmas shouldn't uh, minimize our joy and make us retreat from joy that we see in our culture. It should make us expand that joy dramatically when we understand what Christmas really means, what Christmas means for us as Christians in, in the church today, uh, or what Christmas means if, if you're not a Christian for you today. So this uh, uh, sort of cultural dichotomy that we have uh, surrounding Christmas, let's, let's be honest with ourselves for the, the time and place that we live in in the United States. This is, uh, this is like a, we're having a privileged conversation already. The young, although incredibly fast-growing uh, Christian church in Iran is not having a similar conversation of how do we, uh, like, it, you know, like people are saying happy holidays. How offended are we going to be this year? That's not the type of conversation they're having. They, they don't, it, we live in a culture where Christianity has simply been the folk religion of the West for hundreds of years. And so that comes with a, a very privileged position in which uh, we have an incredible voice and there's a lot of influence on our culture that just we get to benefit from. But it also comes with a lot of baggage. So the psalm that we're looking at today, I think, will help us tease out uh, the signal from the noise. What's the baggage and what's something that we need, what are the things that we really need to hone in on in order to see the true joy of Christmas? So you may not be precisely familiar with today's psalm, um, but I promise you are familiar with the song that it inspired, uh, which 
I bet you could guess by the title of the sermon what the song is. That's exactly right. It's Oh Holy Night. Um, no, it's Joy to the World. Um, so Joy to the World was written by, uh, it was written in 1719 by Mariah Carey. Um, I'm glad that one landed. A lot of times the jokes that I write, I'm not able to execute, but that worked. Um, so in 1719, uh, Joy to the World was written by a guy named Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is considered to be the godfather of English hymnody, uh, which is a, an actual quote. He's the don of hymns. So he has written over 700 and 50 hymns. That's an incredible life's work. To put that in perspective, uh, U2 has 218 songs, so he's like three Bonos. <laughs> the, uh, he's, it, I want to explore his character a bit because he's a really, really interesting person, Isaac Watts, that we're still benefiting from in the church today. He was, uh, uh, aside from being uh, a great hymn writer, the sort of renowned hymn writer and poet. He was also a logician, like a logic magician. Just kidding, that's not what that means. He was, he, he was a logician, so he taught logic and he wrote books on logic, um, which is uh, amazing because most, I, I feel like you sort of get one side of the brain or the other, but his whole brain seemed to be full. He's a poet and this incredible logician. Uh, he wrote a book on logic titled Logic or the right use of reason in the inquiry after truth with a variety of rules to guard against error in the affairs of religion and human life as well as in the sciences, um, which his publisher was fine with. So that book became the standard text at Harvard, Cambridge, Yale, and Oxford. It was in use for more than 100 years at Oxford, his book on logic. I didn't know this about... Isaac Watts, he's, he's kind of a mind-blowing type of uh, genius. Uh, our interests today, of course, aren't to do with his logic, but with his poetry. Joy to the World was originally found, uh, not written as a hymn like we sing it today with the melody that we sing it with, uh, but it was written in a book of poems, and then it was later set to music. Um, uh, so that book of poems was composed in 1719, and it was entitled, The Psalms of David, Imitated in the Language of the New Testament and Applied to the Christian State in Worship. Um, so you never had to wonder, like, what am I getting in this book? <laughs> when you bought an Isaac Watts book, he was like, I'll tell you. <laughs> this is what this book is. So what's interesting about Watts's poetry and why it's actually particularly helpful is he's operating in a tradition that was really started by John Calvin, which uh, was taking the Psalms and rendering them in a common vernacular. That way they could be sung by congregations. So taking them out of the um, more difficult uh, translations that they had at the time of Scripture and rendering the Psalms in a way that they're singable for us now, for, particularly for congregational worship, like we had this morning, and we'll have again. And uh, Watts moves in this same tradition, but he adds this new element 
in which he says that he is, uh, the way that he's rendering the Psalms is meant to, quote, imitate the language of the New Testament. So basically what Watts is saying is he wants to capture the way that the New Testament uses, views, and sees the Psalms. So he wants to capture that element in his rendering of the Psalms. Basically, what we see in the Psalms is written in anticipation of Christ. So he's able to view the Psalms from these New Testament perspective, from this New Testament perspective, as referring to and anticipating Jesus. He's saying, when I render these, I'm not going to pretend like we don't know where this story's headed. I'm going to render these in such a way that we see and have seen their fulfillment in Christ, where Jesus becomes the sort of key that unlocks the truest interpretation of what's happening in each of these psalms. And that's the way that he rendered them, so that they aren't, uh, they aren't just for the original hearing audience as they were written in the book of Psalms, but also as the Holy Spirit intended the Psalms to move through time for the later reading audience, which is us, who is able to see them now further down the progressive line of God's work in history, now on the other side of Jesus, and seeing in these Psalms, like, like a, these Psalms then become like a window that we can look through and see the greater glory of the gospel expressed. And so Watts, in his rendering of the Psalms in these books, is doing exactly that. He's listening through the noise of the Psalms to uh, this, this signal of Jesus that's in them. So in Psalm 98, which is what we're looking at today, uh, that's the Psalm that inspired joy to the world. And you'll be able to see it in the language. It's really clear. Uh, but what we'll see for our purposes this morning is that uh, verses 1 through 3 act as the basis for the joy. So it, you can pull up the psalm on your phone even. Uh, it's on there. <laughs> uh, and see that verses 1 through 3, they act as the basis for joy to the world. And then uh, the rest of the psalm, 4 through 9, acts as uh, the expression, the eruption, the explosion of joy that is the song, Joy to the World, as we know it today. Um, so we're going to see the basis for the joy, and then we're going to see the uh, joy itself in the text. So first off, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 in a section I've headed a uh, new, new song. So I'll go ahead and read Psalm 98, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The tradition of the holidays, the tradition of Christmas, can start to cloud out what at one time was an incredibly new and surprising celebration. I was riding in the car with my wife the other day, and we were listening to a Spotify Christmas playlist, 
And one of the songs that came up was just like by a new artist, and they wrote a new Christmas song. And my wife turns to me and she goes, I don't want to hear some made-up Christmas song. <laughs> Which is funny because they're all made up. Like, it's like we found Christmas songs. I found them. Um, but it's true. When we think of Christmas songs, there's an established canon. We don't think of them ever having been new. They've sort of just existed forever, and those are the ones that we want to hear because our understanding of Christmas, our experience of Christmas is colored so much by a desire for nostalgia and tradition. But uh, when, we, when we look at, at Christmas, it's really this breaking in of something totally new. It's a new thing. It requires a new song, and that's where this psalm starts out immediately. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. The old songs won't work because they, they aren't celebrating this new thing that's going to happen, a thing that hasn't happened yet. It's something important that we often don't see and that we don't give enough credence in Christianity is that it takes place historically. Christianity is not some philosophy that exists in a realm of pure ideas that can be applied at any point the same way throughout history. It's not the case. God operates in history. And so we understand it most clearly as taking place in that story. They, the, the term, uh, like the academic term is redemptive history. How is God operating in redemptive history? That means that new things can break in. Things you hadn't seen before can now be breaking in because it takes place in history. So the old songs simply won't work. As it continues, it says, uh, sing a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. See, this psalm looks forward to something so wonderful, so marvelous, that nothing could capture how we'll sing about it yet. We'll have to see it, and then we'll be able to make these new songs. And he borrows language from a time when that had happened before. That phrase, his right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation, that's language that he's borrowing from an earlier song that the Israelites sang right after the Exodus. So immediately following the Exodus, they cross through the Red Sea, and they, uh, the horse and rider was drowned in the sea. Like that song? Nope. Cool. And they, uh, um, they cross through. The Egyptian army is drowned in the sea, and they erupt into a new song that hadn't been sung before to celebrate this incredible salvation that how could they possibly have imagined? And they use that same language of this was, the, this was the right hand of God that delivered us. Because what they're trying to communicate is that this work of salvation was completely God's. He is the one who saved us. He, we were helpless, and he came down and rescued us. This was his hand that did the rescuing. And that makes perfect sense in that context because you consider uh, uh, one of the Hebrew people walking through the parted Red Sea and like walking through and be like, okay, I'm on the other side. That was 
quite a thing, and turning around and seeing the Egyptian armies chasing them through, and then all of a sudden being washed away. They, they aren't standing on the other side and thinking, well, I was saved because I walked so well. It couldn't have crossed their mind. How could they have seen such a salvation that they had worked in not they, all they could do was just celebrate this was all God's. He worked our salvation here. This was a new type of thing that we couldn't possibly have anticipated. There's, an ele- there's this element of Christianity and God's work in history that we neglect, and that's surprise, which is a, such an amazing, it's such a beautiful thing. When was the last time you were surprised, like pleasantly surprised? It was, you happened upon something and it was, wow, this was so much better than I'd ever anticipated. I was blown away by how good uh, this circumstance was. That's a rare, beautiful experience. And Christianity, in God's work, the way that his hand works in salvation throughout history is constantly marked by this incredible surprise. Because there's, before Moses, no Israelites were sitting around thinking, you know, I think, uh, you know how they're killing all the Hebrew babies? I think one's going to make it out, and he's going to get adopted by royalty, and then he's going to kill an Egyptian, and he's going to go away, and God's going to talk to him, probably in like a bush that you can't wear shoes around. <laughs> and then he's going to come back, and he's going to talk to Pharaoh, because he'll be able to, because he was royalty once. And uh, there's going to be ten plagues, nine, uh, ten plagues. <laughs> and uh, uh, then we're, gonna just, we're just going to walk out taking all their stuff, eating flatbread. Uh, that's probably how God will save us. Yeah, yeah, but what about the sea? <laughs> oh, the sea's not going to, he's just going to part it. The sea's not going to be an issue, right? Like those events are incredibly surprising and, kind, and almost bizarre when you look at them. From our, we're so familiar with these stories that we miss this element of surprise. We miss this desire to express a completely new song because this act of salvation by God. God is doing these things in such a way where once you've experienced them, all you can do is celebrate him. There's, there's nothing else you can point to. Who else can I celebrate here? Can I, uh, all I can do is celebrate the God who worked this salvation for us. We were helpless slaves oppressed by the most powerful government in human history and we just walked out one day. That's his right hand working salvation in a new and surprising way. So it needs a new song to celebrate it. Now, if we take Isaac Watts' approach and we see the implications of this psalm to what we know now on this side of Jesus' coming, we see that the uh, New Testament language that Watts was describing, the New Testament uses this same language to describe Jesus' salvation, the salvation that was rendered to the church by Jesus. And it, it says, for example, um, in Acts 4, 27 through 28, after experiencing their first bit of Uh, persecution, the apostles gather together and they pray. And they pray this. It says, for truly, 
In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, they're looking back on this event, and they're, there's, they're saying this, this was the hand of God at work. This was the plan of God at work. What's crazy about what they're referencing is, is they're saying, truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan said to be done. So they're, they're referencing the crucifixion. So that means now at this point, early on, after seeing the resurrection, they're looking back at the crucifixion and they're saying that was the hand of God working his salvation. When Pontius Pilate cowardly washes his hands, that was him doing whatever God's hand had predestined him to do. This most atrocious, most terrible, most heinous act of sin that has ever taken place in human history was God's hand working out the most incredible salvation we could ever imagine. Who could have guessed that? We're so familiar, but we miss what a surprise. Who could have seen that perhaps God will become a man. And perhaps the problem isn't just uh, these external enemies and foes, but perhaps the problem is really in us. Perhaps it's this terrible sin that keeps us from God. And, and what if that true enemy, what if we were actually God's true enemies, but he became a man, and what if in becoming a man, he, he were to actually be killed? And what if he could take the death that we deserved, that way God might still be righteous? And what if he would give us, as this God-man, his righteousness, that we might be saved. And what if all the corruption and all the sin and all the pain and the hurt and the tears of this world could be ransomed back to God? That payment would be so high, it must take something like the Son of God. From what we see about the way Jesus is received, the way that uh, the expectation of the Jewish people, that was not in anyone's head. See, that was a complete surprise that breaks onto the scene. This incredible wonder that requires a new song to be sung. And that's what this psalm is looking forward to not able to clearly articulate yet, but that we can now, where we are in history, look back on to celebrate. Not merely anticipate, but celebrate.
there's an incredible surprise in the way that God works his salvation in Jesus. It requires a new song. So that provides the basis in one through three. And we see that salvation, salvation is worked completely by God in these surprising and marvelous ways. Now, uh, we'll move on to the part that really inspires the lyrics of Joy to the World. So, Psalm 98, 4 to 5 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So, Isaac Watts sees this rightly as a reference to joy to the world. The Lord has come. Jesus has come. Joy to the world. The Lord is here. Jesus has arrived. That's the way we can see this psalm now. That's the way we can understand this psalm. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. It's a celebration of God becoming a man in Jesus at Christmas. This incredible surprise of God writing himself into our story that we might be saved by him. This uh, week, when researching this, and kind of actually what sort of prodded this uh, uh, sermon, was I read probably a dozen uh, articles or blog posts on how joy to the world shouldn't really be a Christmas song. Um, uh, because Christians have too much time to blog, uh, is why. So, joy to the world shouldn't really be a Christmas song. So, what do they mean by that? What do they mean joy to the world shouldn't really be a Christmas song? The, the argument is joy to the world is actually about Jesus's second coming. It's a looking forward to Jesus's second coming. It is not a celebration of Jesus's first coming. Uh, there, was, there was an article on this in The Atlantic. She's like, why are you writing about this? And there's an article on, about this in The Gospel Coalition, which I get why they were writing about it, but they're usually pretty legit. And this article is terrible. Uh, they're, they're, so I'll just come out with it. They're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> Joy to the World is a Christmas song. Uh, I'll state my thesis for the rest of the sermon. Joy to the World is a Christmas song. It's not about the second coming. It's about the first coming. And when you make it about the second coming, you're robbing Jesus of the position that he has now as king and you're thwarting the movement that he is looking to work through his church now by bringing his kingdom into the world far as the curse is found. That's not something that, um, that's something that will progress under Jesus' rule now as it is. So uh, now that I've involved you in a controversy that you didn't know existed, uh, until like three minutes ago, uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my time here because I got so fired up. But this really, this really matters, which when you have to say it really matters, that's not good. It's like saying, this joke's really funny. But there's, uh, 
This really matters because if we don't understand the true implications of what Jesus' first coming meant, then we won't live correctly now as the church. We'll be filtering the world completely wrong, and we won't see Jesus as our present king. We'll see him only as a king to come. And Christmas means that Jesus is now the king, the Lord has come. Satan has been stripped of his power and bound that the gospel might move into all of creation, to quote Isaac Watts, far as the curse is found. And if we aren't anticipating that type of movement, then we as a church will, will be huddling together and we'll be fearfully ignoring our culture and we won't be witnessing it and we won't be expecting our careers and our families and our relationships to be working a redemption into the world that, that needs to be worked into the world by us as servants of the true king who's ruling now. It's incredibly important. This isn't a side note thing, whether or not Joy to the World is a Christmas song. This is a central thing. And it reveals a huge, glaring misunderstanding that we have about Christmas. Christmas, I hope, by the end of this sermon, you'll see is probably far better than you think right now. Far better. So... Uh, whoa, hope I can live up to that. So first, it is, uh, so I'm going to deconstruct their arguments, and then we'll look at why this is so important. First is a grammatical argument. This is a straw man, just because I want to make fun of them. The, uh, so the argument goes, when you look at the original text that Isaac Watts wrote in 1719, it doesn't say, the Lord has come, it says, the Lord is come. And so they'll say, that means it's not looking back on Jesus who has come, it's looking forward to God, to Jesus in his second coming when he is to come. That's just wrong and bad. And I, the first time I've been thankful for net neutrality's repeal because maybe that drivel will cost more. Um, there's... Uh, that's, this is archaic English, and it, is come is an equivalent term to has come. So it says, uh, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, oh look, Charlotte is come. That's not, oh look, Charlotte's going to get here. That's, oh look, here's Charlotte. So that one, we can table that one now. The Lord is come means the Lord has come. It's referencing the past. So... Next, uh, Isaac Watts in the third stanza of Joy to the World, uh, we see this sort of argument from observation, and this one's real. This one's really painful. Watts writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So to quote my new least favorite blogger, who I, I'm not even putting their names up, um, he says, I grew up on an acre of woods in North Carolina. There were thorns, briar patches, all over the place. I'm pretty sure the thorns didn't go away when Jesus was born. So he provides this argument from observation, which is Jesus must not be king now. 
And to celebrate him as king and ruler now is foolish because look at the world. Look at the pain and the turmoil and the struggle that is still in the world. But you see, when you miss this, you start to filter the world completely wrong. Because our understanding of Jesus as king now means that his kingdom is the way that Jesus himself talked about it. It's like, it will be like a mustard seed, which starts out as the smallest seed in the garden, and then as it grows, it becomes the largest, so that even birds can come and make their nests in it. See, Jesus talks about the kingdom in terms of this slow, organic expansion, this movement throughout history, that eventually, under his guiding, under his current ruling, becomes the most influential force in all of culture. So that you can't turn around with, without being somehow influenced by the blessing that the kingdom of heaven has brought into the world. That's what it means that Jesus is king. So with that understanding, it changes the way that you view the thorns and the thistles. That's a reference to the original curse in Genesis 3 that will toil against the thorns and thistles in the ground. When we come up against those obstacles and we don't see that Jesus is king now, then it will just reinforce that we need to retreat from them. If Jesus isn't king now, then we see these obstacles and it says, see, look, look at the way our culture is deteriorating. Jesus obviously isn't king. Let's move away from those people, huddle together ourselves so we can stay protected in a world ruled by Satan until Jesus finally comes again and does away with them and saves us. That's the way we'll start to filter those thorns and thistles. Whereas when we see that Jesus is king now, we filter those thorns and thistles and we say, this is an area that Jesus' grace needs to be brought into. And it may be risky to move in there. It may be risky to make this type of a friend. It may be risky to, take this, uh, to make this move, to form this business that I think will be really helpful. It may, there may be all this risk involved, but... I, I know who the real king is. And I know he's got my back. So I can move into these areas expecting him to bring his kingdom there. When Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, he's with his disciples. He gathers them together and he says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I hope it's familiar. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See what Jesus is saying there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
I'm the king now. I'm in charge of all of this now. And so move. Now go, because I'm with you. Bring my blessings that I have now purchased and secured on the cross. Bring them far as the curse is found. When you see thorns and thistles, know that I'm with you to bring about a redemption in those places. So that when you filter the obstacles in your life, it's like, well, it's good that I'm here and Jesus is king. Because I bet we'll see some miraculous, even surprising working of his grace in this area. When we get this, when we get that Jesus is king now, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Jesus has come. The Lord is here. Let earth receive her king then we join him in the process that he's working in the world. This means that there is presently an incredible hope, even for our, for our own hearts. That as we see, as far as the curse has infected us, there's this present hope that Jesus is king. And he's working, even in you, to bring about his redemption, far as the curse is found. That's what we see in Christmas, in the surprising first coming of Jesus. We filter the thorns and the thistles appropriately because we know who the real king is. It's easy for our church, for us, to become sort of infected or infested with these views that offer a constant reinforcing that Jesus isn't king now. So we filter the world that way. We look at our politics and we say, would Jesus just come back (laughs) so that he'll finally be in charge? See, in hoping for Jesus' coming back, for his second coming, what we're looking forward to is his redemption being worked having been worked throughout all of creation. And therefore, we hope for that incredibly. We hope for that with an amazing, amazing depth. But not to the neglect of Christmas, which says that the Lord has come. Receive your king. I was telling Megan, I was like, I feel like I'm on like a mission this morning, that there's people out there who who haven't received their king, that we have a new king, the world has a new king, and that allows you to move forward with this amazing hope and levity, because who is, who's really in control here? Who's going to have the last word here? means these obstacles that we face and we see in ourselves, they aren't cause for despair because the trajectory of history is one of optimism. It's one of an expansion of Christianity. It's not one of a a cowering until he comes back. He has inaugurated his kingship. He will have his kingdom. That's the good news. You have a new king. Will you treat him as such? Will will every heart prepare him room? Join with heaven and nature as it sings. 
I'll finish with the last stanza of Joy to the World, which says, He rules the world with truth and grace. Wouldn't you want that to be true? Say, even though I can't see it exactly in every circumstance, I know that it's true. You're ruling the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. You know the way God proves his righteousness to us? Is in the gospel. When he justifies us so that we can come to him, and he's just doing so, in that we see the wonders of his love. So this Christmas, know that this is a story about a king who has come to renew his kingdom. He has come. We have an incredible hope for the way that we engage with our lives now, which means that we can lean into his movement, thankful for the wonders of his love. So when we sing that, long, that song today, let's sing extra loud, and we'll filter out uh, some of the noise of Christmas to get to the signal, because I hope you see that it's maybe better than you even thought. The hope of Christmas is better than you even thought. Okay, let's take questions. Forgot we do that. (laughs) How should we encourage someone to have this joy when that person says they are having trouble seeing or hearing God? Um, uh, So, we're lucky now, being at this stage in redemptive history, because we, the printing press really took off and we have Bibles. Um, which means that if you want to hear God, you just can at any moment. Can you imagine what the apostles would have accomplished with their, with their zeal and a Bible like we have? It's unthinkable. There are times of dryness. Even times of dryness that aren't due to sin They're just simply there. But understanding that Jesus is king now. God is in control of this world. And if if it's someone like Jesus who's in control, then we can't possibly think that this time of dryness is to harm us. But if we're in Christ, then it's only for our good. It's cultivating something new in us. It's redeeming an aspect of us. Our hope as Christians isn't that we won't have hard times, times of dryness, times where God feels silent and absent. Our hope is that those times will be making us more like Jesus. And that just as when we look back on history and we say, Pontius Pilate and Herod two guys that work together to kill Jesus, commit this atrocious sin, we look back on that time and we say, that was the hand 
in the plan of God. Our hope is that we'll be able to look at the hardships in our lives the same way. You know, that was the hand in the plan of God. And because of the incredible glory that it's produced now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That clarity comes with an understanding of the gospel. So uh, my advice would be to hone in on that. Next question. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Which means that there were text questions texted in, and if yours didn't get answered, it was like, well, you should have listened. <laughs> uh, okay, let's pray. We're, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion Communion is a celebration of what Jesus came to do. That incredible surprise of his broken body, his poured out blood, that we might be saved, that the world wouldn't be thrown away, but that it would be redeemed. Let's celebrate that together. Father, we live in a culture where Christmas is surrounded by so much noise, uh, and we try and cultivate just so much joy out of uh, just traditions and uh, things that aren't bad, but I feel like we're missing out on seeing how good Christmas really is, what the good news of Christmas is. I, I hope that we hear the songs differently. I hope we hear them better. I know I never thought of We Three Kings until this morning. And I think I've heard it better. That there's these songs that have lasted that, uh, they've lasted because they're, they're grasping at trying to, to get us to really hear something so glorious that it, we often just turn the volume down on it to make it more accessible. And it's the wrong move because it's... Uh, uh, Oftentimes, it's just, it's better than we think. Lord, help us see the Christmas story as it is, your work in history as it is. Help us approach you because of it as our king who has all authority, who promised to be with us, who secured the redemption of the world at the cross and who is working it out through our lives. Lord, we look forward to when you come back and you're here with us presently, physically. We praise you for being with us now, spiritually. Father, give us eyes to see your true glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.